the pandemic, books were not socially distant from us. It was one of the comforts for a lot of people. There were books to read and books to follow and books to look forward to. But one of the strange things about reading, although it's done silently and it's done alone most of the time, that you want to share books, that if you like a book, you want someone else to read it, that you love the idea of a book that is, in a way, being, being part of the community or part of a community of readers. With that in mind, the art of reading is a way of bringing readers together. It's a way of choosing books that I think people might like because they have given me a lot of pleasure and having a discussion about these books and bringing people together so that we all know that it's not just that reading is a form of pleasure, which it also is, but it's an art. It's actually a way for us to engage intellectually and imaginatively with words, with sentences, with what writers have done. And um, so for that reason, um, I want to share these books that have mattered so much to me. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming, and thanks to the library for hosting us. When I was growing up, I wonder if I'm alone in this, there were four places in Ireland, there may have been a fifth, but I can't think of what it was, that had a special glamour for summer Sundays around the 15th of August. One was Town, which was not like any other beach um, on the Wexford coast. It was filled with amusements, with pongo, with bingo, with, with chairplanes, with crowds of people in the car park. The other was Ballybunion, and the other was, um, oh, help me, with Sligo, um, what's that? Enniscrone. What's Crone? Bondorn <laughs> was, was beautiful, Bondorn. And um, Strand Hill was, and they were, they, they were different to the other ones, which often just had bare beaches and one little shop. These had loads of things, and they were very exciting if you were young. And um, we had a relative who would just drive in from the country on, on a Sunday into Core Town, and she wouldn't get out of the car because there was so much excitement just in the car park with people coming and going that she just sat there and commented on people, and that was her Sunday. So um, obviously the one I haven't mentioned is Tremor, which had the same sort of glamour and was built probably in the 50s based on some American ideal, and of course it struck none of us that there was a life there in the winter, and indeed in the summer itself, that was not the life of just coming on a Sunday to, uh, to enjoy the beach and enjoy the amusements, but there was an inner, inner world of it. I suppose the first question I want to ask you before you just read us a bit of the book is, did you ever think about not naming it? And in naming it, in calling it Tremor, what, what sort of energy do you think, you, extra energy you got from it? Yeah. Um, well, I felt that it would be really recognisable to people as Tremor because there's so many landmarks that are named in the novel. Um, once you say the metal man, then people know this is Tremor, or you say Brownstown Head or the race course, that actually there was no point in not naming it, and, and that was it. But yeah, you're, you're right, there are so many seaside towns that are similar to Tremor. It's an old Victorian town, like Bray or Salt Hill. So the prom there is a Victorian prom. And um, so yeah, it just felt totally recognisable to me, but the history goes way back you're quite correct in the 1950s was where the dance halls and the amusement park and all of this would have started out then. 
but actually the Victorians were the ones who used it as a health spa and a steam train line was built from Waterford City to bring the moneyed Victorians out and they had bathing boxes in Tremor on the Strand. So the history goes way back uh, before and I was very conscious of that and I also named maritime tragedies that happened in Tremor that couldn't have happened anywhere else. So I, I was quite comfortable naming it and yeah, the whole point was that it was in Tremor for me. So, so it's not a fictional Irish town, it's emphatically those streets and that light and that Waterfordness. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I did take some poetic licence. Oh, oh, absolutely. What? <laughs> what a relief. You know, otherwise it would have been completely non-fiction. But um, no, I did. And what that was around was, you know, I needed shops to happen in streets where there were no shops and streets to happen in places where there were no streets. So people in Tremor would say, there's no butchers there. You know, there's always somebody who would. And the other thing was that, you know, I mean, I was born in Waterford, but I'm not from Tremor. And people in Tremor call the amusements down around. They don't call it the amusements, which I didn't know until after the book was published. Down round. Down round. We're going down round. In Waterford City, they call it the amusements. But, you know, if you're talking to a local, because they say we're going down round. Yeah. It's the Mary's in Cork. Everyone here knows that. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you read us a, a bit of the book, please? Yeah, I'll, I'll read from the beginning, uh, Colm, because apart from when I'm in Waterford, I feel like it's much, I'm better to read from the beginning because it gives you the introduction to Tremor. And I wanted this to work as though you had just arrived into the town. Almost, we were talking about drones earlier, like a drone bird's eye view of the town in the off season. So I'll start at the beginning. Tremor, population 6,101. It was the off-season and the local youngsters were up to no good in Tip Phelan's caravan park. He wasn't about to begrudge them a few flagons in the dunes until he got a phone call from the Garda sergeant telling him a bad element was hanging around. Would he consider installing security cameras or a couple of Alsatians? That was the way with the guards. They'd make a suggestion and if you ignored it, you'd be done for tax or speeding or any else shite. The call would have to be acted on. But you're only courting trouble with dogs and cameras, so Tip put a small ad in the Irish Independent instead. Wanted caretaker to live rent-free by the sea. He was known as Tipperary because the only song he ever sang was Schlieve Naman. In the back room of the Grand on a Saturday night, nobody would deny he had a voice. There was a want in it that could only be understood by men since it afflicted them alone. An unassailable scourge for which there was no end or cure. Whenever he cleared his throat to sing, a shut-up to fuck swept over the bar. Hush, 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 all the way down to the lounge. Tip closed his eyes tight against the silence and began. Alone, all alone, by the wave-washed strand, and alone in a crowded hall. The hall it is gay and the waves they are grand, but my heart is not here at all. His real name was Michael Phelan, but nobody in Tremor, apart from his wife, Verona, knew it. She called him Tip anyway, and he called her V or VP when they were alone, and she gave him the look, knowing it would drive him demented. They could be at it half the night, and often they were. The next day, he'd be addled with desire and a profound ache in his bones. Early on in the marriage, when he was still hurling, he'd sleep out of temptation's way in the spare room, a measure he was forced to take after a bionic all-nighter left him in ribbons for the county final. <laughs> the sentiment on the sideline was that he'd been brutal, and they took him off at half-time. But the match was beyond salvation. Oh, v was lethal all right, or at least she had been before the twins came along. These days, she was indifferent to him. It was like living with a cat. 
When she wasn't changing the babies, she was nursing them, one on each nipple, their little fat legs kneading her stomach like it was dough. She was exhausted, destroyed. He begged her to patch things up with her mother for the love of God. Verona bundled her breasts back into the sling she'd taken to wear in place of a bra and zipped her fleece up to the chin. Hell will freeze over, she said, before I talk to that bitch again. 22 people applied for the caretaker job. Tip ruled out 17 immediately on the grounds of age, criminality and Englishness. Of the five that remained, four hung up when they heard the position was unpaid. The fifth was a musician from Dublin. His accent was thicker than tar. I could do with the headspace. The payphone swallowed another 20 pence on him. Do you know what I mean? Tip knew exactly what he meant. The place is yours, he said. The musician arrived at the weekend with a hold all over his shoulder and a guitar in one hand. The other one he extended in a handshake that was too solid to be sincere, his dark eyes holding Tip's gaze for longer than was necessary. Dahi was his name, and he was idling around the 30 mark with the matted brown hair and the makings of a ginger beard. He wore a hoop in one ear and a scrap of black silk knotted around his throat, an affectation that left itself dangerously open to interpretation. But he had the strut of a man who wouldn't take any lip. They agreed if there was trouble, he was to phone Tip. If there wasn't, he was to leave him alone. With the musician keeping an eye on the caravan park and the guards off his back, all Tip had to worry about now was getting through the next few months without the comfort of Verona. Her plan was to dedicate herself body and soul to the twins, while he took care of the older child, a boy of almost four, who tornadoed around the house, taking swipes at balled-up socks and baby toys with a hurley that couldn't be prized from him. It was like a stick grafted onto the end of his chubby arm. He had the energy of six children, and the school wouldn't take him for another year. So there was nothing for it but to run him up and down the length of the strand until he surrendered to tiredness and fell asleep in his booster seat on the drive back home. Tip was pucking a tennis ball up and down the beach for the child the first time he saw the girl. She was walking arm in arm with the musician, her red hair aloft in the onshore wind. He watched them stride across the boulder bank in their long coats. At the dunes, the musician took the girl's hand and pulled her onto the sandbank. He held her hair between his fingers and kissed her face. A moment later, they vanished through a gap in the marum grass to continue their canoodling in the caravan park. Tip imagined the girl lying on the faded candlewick bedspread, her skin lilac from the cold, her hair tangled and smelling of the sea. The tide lapped its way up the shore. The child still had an air, maybe two of divilment in him. It was going to be a long night. Wow. Did you feel that Tremor was a, a, was, was a landscape, I mean, a, I mean a, a, an emotional landscape as well as a place that was just utterly undescribed? It was not in anything that you, that you were reading and that, and that therefore you had a sudden space to put a flag up over. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt, Colin. But I have to be straight up here. I had read William Trevor's short story, Honeymoon in Tremor, about eight years ago. And it's an extraordinary story. Could you tell story. us about the story? Yeah, so this story was probably published around 1960, I think, in America first. And um, it's the story of a farmhand called Davy Toom, who is boarded out from an orphanage in Cork City to the countryside into a family at 15. And he falls in love instantly with the farmer's daughter, Kitty. And for the next... 15, 17 years is admiring her from afar, but he's the hired help into the house. The mother is dead. And then Kitty gets herself into trouble. 
with this local gad about Cotty Donegan, I think is his name. It's a great name. And someone has to take the blame because Cotty isn't stepping up to the plate at all. So Davy is called upon, first of all, to go into Minogue's chemist in Cork City and to an abortionist. And Kitty says, no, I can't do this. So now someone has to be found to marry her. And Davy is the person who's going to marry her. So she decides we'll go to Tremor on our honeymoon. And they arrive at the boarding house in Tremor. Kitty is showing. Immediately, Mrs. Hurley, who's the landlady of the boarding house, cops on what's happening. And then we, what happens is the first night of their honeymoon, and we see how much he's been cuckolded into the situation. But that story, to me, was the first time I'd ever heard Tremor being mentioned in fiction. It was a town I knew quite well, you know. And I thought, my God, how has nobody else written about this place? Now, Trevor's story is so vivid. In fact, now when I reread it, I realise it's been a huge influence over so many aspects of the amusements. Um, but at the time, I thought no one has ever written a short story about Tremor other than him. I'm going to give it a go. And I mean, this was about seven or eight years ago. So I wrote a short story called A Court Order about um, a father who gets access, a court order access to his son at weekends and takes him from Dublin down to Tremor for the weekend, was shortlisted for the Bath short story competition. And I loved writing it so much. And it was the first time, I, first time I'd been published that I thought, I must be good at writing about Tremor. I'll give this another go. And so I wrote another story um, which appears in The Amusements and it's St. Otterans. It's the chapter where Helen is a little girl and is taken into St. Otterans to visit her father who's drying out in the, in the county mental hospital. Um, so that story was the one that won the, the um, Harper's Bazaar competition. And so it was the origin story. And I think a lot of writers work that way, you know, so that was the origin story for the amusements. And that gave me Helen. And I had all these questions in my head about the little girl from that story. You know, do, how did her life turn out? Did she get married? Did she have kids? Did she go to college? Who was her best friend? And I started just answering those questions by building a life for her in Tremor. And that's how it came about. But I'm really indebted to William Trevor's short story. Absolutely. Um, I suppose there's nothing worse than another writer telling you that you have a problem, but, but you do. You have a problem, which is that you have a natural ability to write comedy. I mean, even the bit, I mean, you sort of glossed over it when you read it. Anyone else would have stopped to get a laugh. And the Englishness. Didn't do, yeah, no, I mean, 22 cheap. people applied for the caretaker job. Tip ruled out 17 immediately on the grounds of age, criminality, and Englishness. You just go, <laughs> okay. And um, I, mean, I mean, oh yeah, there's a wonderful, um, description. I mean, just, just casual, it's just there. It doesn't, it, the, the work it's doing is to add detail, but it doesn't just do that. It stops you for a second thinking. Um, at the far, this is, this is in, the, in the arcades. Um, Evie yanks the slot machine arm and squeals whenever it stops on three of a kind. At the far end, an old biddy in slippers and a thrift store cardigan is feeding her state pension into a poker machine. And you just go, oh. <laughs> and um, on, um, sorry, I just uh, another example. Um, on 34, there's a wonderful detail um, about photos. You know, you put in photos to be developed and then you don't come to collect them. And it says, um, but I'd need a camera and film and I'd have to get it developed down the kiosk. You would. And if I didn't pay and collect the photos in time, Midge McGuire would stick them in the shop window under unclaimed photograph sign for the whole town to see. So just the image of that in any small town. Oh, my God. Uh, but, but then on the opposite page, 
I watch you almost deciding I'm not a comedian. I'm not writing a comic novel about this comic place. I'm doing something much more serious and I need to check myself regularly to stop making jokes, however good, to see if there's something else I can get from this territory. Mm. And you go, um, that, th- this sentence, that January, like every January, a sea mist hung over the town and it was dark by half past four. And again, that sentence was a huge, it was dark by half past four. Just watch the rhythm of that. Mm. That time you're like every January. So you're suddenly back into another world of generations, of, of seasons, of things happening again and again. And also of this place as a deserted village. As much as it is fun in the summer, it's deserted in the winter. So, so that I can watch you all the time in this book, playing a game with yourself between how just how funny some of the book is, and then there's a much darker edge, and then there's a much darker core. So I just I suppose this is a long question, and the, and there's, I have to come to the question part, which is, um, you know, how how I'm not going to even ask me how conscious you were, but but I mean, th- this is something you were obviously working with this this idea of of your own skill writing c- comedy, and your own skill at actually finding a darker thing and trying to match them and put them together. Yeah, I think lightness and shade are really important. I mean, you know, I don't write with the reader in mind, but I am conscious of writing something. There's a lot of darkness and there's a lot of, there's quite a bit of death in this book. Um, but I, I, I suppose the challenge for me and what I wanted to do was have dark humour, a gallows humour that goes along with it. You know, for me as a writer as well, you know, to, to be sitting there working with that material, it was really important. But you're right, you have to pull back from it. You can't go for kind of cheap laughs. And sometimes... Um, but the seasonality comes into it as well, because when you look at these seaside towns, to me, they're very theatrical, and there's always the comedy and the tragedy going on at the same time in them. So in the winter time, it's a very bleak place, and I had this theatrical idea of pulling back the curtain in the winter and seeing the rigging behind it, the empty caravan park, and, you know, the amusement park with just the skeleton of the roller coaster in it. And all of this, like the visuals in seaside towns and in Tremor in particular are so strong. You know, and there's memorials there to tragedies at sea. Some of them modern, some of them, you know, very old. So there's a lot of death and a lot of tragedy there. But then in the summertime, the circus pull in and it's the amusements and it's all... Um, you know, sort of sandcastles and buckets and those little windmills and candy floss. And so I suppose there is kind of a dissonance that I wanted. Um, And that is probably reflected in the humour. Yeah, and the tragedy was important to have that. But I wasn't hugely self-conscious about it. It kind of, it came quite naturally. Okay. Yeah. Um, I suppose the the, um, idea then that as a protagonist in this book, um, Tremor is playing, is playing the part of the protagonist. And you then have to start working on the idea you don't want your characters to be typical people in a yeah. typical place. In other words, it's the unusual nature of Tremor that you're interested in. And then you become interested in the strangeness of, of any of the characters you're dealing mm. with, of how you have to give them very, very precise characteristics um, that are not part of some overall pattern that they're not just the butcher or some widow living alone or the daughter, that they actually have a huge amount, I suppose what we might call rich life. Yeah. um, But what I wonder is, how how did you begin to map the book? Or or did you just write the book? 
No, it was really, uh, well, there's two things there. First of all, the, the issue of character. I do think it is a character-driven novel. So when it came to the structure of it, because it is an unconventional structure, I mean, to me, it's a very modernist structure. I don't believe that the story could have been told uh, with a three-act structure. You know, it's polyphonic, it's episodic, and there are lots of, you know, people have questions whether oh, this are short stories. And I'm always very, no, they're not short stories because they'd be very poorly written short stories. I'm kind of defending the short story more than the novel when I say oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because because, you know, the economy, and I've written short stories that you need for a short story, and it has to be completely self-contained. You cannot just have characters walking in and out of your short stories for no reason. And there had to be a, like, you know, the forward momentum for me is that the reader wants to know what, what happens to these characters. Do they meet again? Do things work out okay for them? And do the bad guys, because there's a couple of them, do they get their comeuppance? And that sort of pathos was really important to me. And you don't have room for that in a short story. That's the work of a novel, you know? So that's where the structure came in. But then the problem was, was threading, because there are two main characters, Helen and Stella in the novel, but there's maybe 14, um, other characters that sort of, you know, they're satelliting or they're, you know, yeah. that they're around. Yeah. And so they all have their own storylines. So they had to follow through from the beginning right through to the end. So I, I don't know how many redrafts I did. I mean, there was just maybe it was dozens, I think. But what I did, I, I painted my kitchen with blackboard paint and bought a huge thing of chalk. And I'd stand in the kitchen at all hours of the on, day. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Start, start slow. You did what? <laughs> I couldn't. I don't know. I don't know. I post-its kept falling off the wall, and then I'd be like, "Oh, it's all after falling apart," and I don't know where it fell down. So I bought back blackboard paint and painted my kitchen with it, and got chalk and I just started you know kind of writing characters and you know actually and I'm terrible at maths but Venn diagrams for where people's stories interacted yeah my brother used to come around and he'd sit down and pour himself a coffee and he'd be like Jesus we're all in for it in this book what's <laughs> 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 so he'd call out the names of the chapters who's that about and all this kind of stuff and T tell us how you began then. I mean, you began, began with a short with story stories, you mentioned. With two could, could, stories. Could you, yeah. could, could you just take us through those? Yeah. So um, the first one, as I mentioned, was St. Otterans, and that's Helen's character. Yeah. And the second one was a story, it's the New York chapter in the book, Kamikaze. Oh, wow. And the way that came about was I wrote that story for the Francis McManus competition about seven years ago, six years ago, maybe. Um, it was much shorter, obviously. The word count for that is 2,000 words. But there was something about it where I was like, this person is connected to Helen Grant. Who is it? And I'd you know, go for long walks and I was like, she's her best friend. They grew up together. That's who she is. So as Kamikaze appears in this, it's twice the length. It's completely different to the way that it was as a short story, but it gave me Stella Swain. That's who the character was. So once I had them, I had to start populating their lives you know, who are their brothers, who are the school teacher, who's the girl that kind of, the one that got pregnant in school and disappeared and came back, who were their mothers, which was really crucial because Stella's mother really is the antagonist in the novel. Um, so it was all of that, really. Yeah. Um, the New York um, episode is really interesting because you get something that I haven't really, the different, I haven't really read before, which is the difference between, say, an Irish pub and a New York bar, which is New York bars are very lonely places. Yeah. And they're open all day and there are three or four losers at the bar and they're sitting there and no one quite knows why they're there except they're, they're drinking solidly. Yeah. And there's one person behind the bar and, and it's, it's, it's a very strange experience to go into one of them. 
yeah. with small New York bars realizing just how desolate it is. I, th I think you captured that in that kamikaze story. I worked in enough of them, Colin. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. did, did, did in the 90s, it? yeah. yeah. I was, well, I was, you know, the sort of Morrison visa generation. And uh, so kamikaze... Could, could you explain Morrison well, visa? Well, sorry, yeah, for, <laughs> for all the very young people, Morrison visa, so the John Lee and Morrison visas would have happened, I suppose, in the 80s and early 90s, where this was part of the lottery scheme for a green card, but there was a bias awaiting towards Irish people. So if you applied, you were pretty much guaranteed to get a green yeah, card. I actually met Bruce Morrison once and I said, do you know in Ireland that yeah. you're, you're the Morrison visa? You know, oh, yeah. Everyone talks about you yeah. as though you're a sort of a yeah. hero. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely is. He was a hero. So, was, so um, you went there? Yeah, so I was working in bars there throughout my 20s. And so Kamikaze, this is really embarrassing, is actually based on my experience of being so naive that I got a job in a topless bar and didn't realise it. <laughs> yeah. It was only topless at the weekends and I just got a job during the week. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why no one was coming in. And they were like, Are you? And they kept saying to me, you gonna work here on the weekends? I was like, I don't know. And they were like, well, we'll come back if you're here on the weekends. So eventually I copped on that the bras that were hanging around off the fans were the bartender's bras. So I, obviously I left and got a job in a different bar. We're all, yeah, I mean. In a good Irish bar. <laughs> Where they sell where they the full food, Irish and where they sell food they and show GA matches. Yeah, well, no, they didn't show GA matches, but you could get a full Irish and a Bloody Mary, and yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the things in the book that that I think belongs to us all is that idea that all of us know of going back to your parents' house mm. or going back to your mother's house when you've been away and you've been doing all these things to find everything the same and everything different, and you don't know what your role is. Yeah. Would you talk to us about that? Um, what well, I just think that's such a common experience for people. It wasn't my experience, actually, you know, so that's not based on anything to do with me. But I do, um, I mean, it's what, you know, in your, um, in A Guest at the Feast, you talk about Enniscorthy in that way, that everything brings you back into it. Earlier, we were talking about Adrian Duncan. And I spoke to Adrian recently about Longford. Adrian Duncan is an Irish writer who... Um, really amazing writer, um, the geometer Lebachowski is his latest novel, but um, I, I spoke to him recently. His Love Notes from a German... Building Site. Love was, Notes from yeah. a German Building Site is yeah. a really good book. Yeah. If you know an engineer, yeah. uh, just this is a book about an engineer. Yeah. So he writes about engineering and, and you know, the man-made environment and... Um, yeah, landscape, but in a really interesting way because he is actually a structural engineer. But in talking to him about writing about bogs and writing about just the landscape, he was saying that he doesn't feel like he's ever left his parents' house. His imagination has never left his parents' house in Longford. People will know him because he's written this non-fiction book about bungalow bliss, you know, that, yeah, so that's who he is. Uh, but he said to me, those aerial photographs um, that people could buy of their bungalows, yeah. that when he looks at the one that his parents bought, um, that all the themes and the preoccupations of his fiction are in that aerial photograph, which I found fascinating. It's, you know, the rick of turf, the old goalpost that he used to play football in, his father's home office. And he said, you know, it's amazing. He lives in Berlin now. You never leave this small area. And I think you were kind of saying the same thing yeah, about Enniscorthy. Yeah. So I don't have that, but maybe, maybe Tremor is, you know, because I went there as a small child, but I didn't grow up there. But I certainly felt so familiar. It was, like I was, it was something in my hardwiring was there when I wrote this book, you know? And 
I think you're aware in the book as well of social differences, of tiny social differences mm. between families mm. becoming enormous as the mothers seek a better lives for their daughters. They shouldn't be hanging around with someone who's just at a smaller level on the, on, on the ladder than them. Yeah. And, but, the, but, the, but that must be true of Waterford as much as, um, uh, as it's true of anywhere, really. You know, maybe. Oh, I think it's true of everywhere. I mean, it's, yeah. or maybe it's maybe it is a particularly Irish thing. In dealing with class, I mean, class is a big thing in the book. You know, I mean, my themes really are family and, um, I suppose, inherited ideas, inherited trauma, inherited begrudges and grief for things that I keep coming back to. You know, um, so in yeah, in the amusements, basically Stella is a middle class girl who makes friends with a working class girl who's Helen, and their mothers end up at war over a telephone bill. You know, one of them can afford to pay it and the other one can't. And of course, Stella's mother is looking down her nose on the grants because they have less money and because Helen's father is an alcoholic. But I suppose. You know, money is not evenly distributed, you know, whereas talent is, and Helen is the talented artist. But it, things don't work out for her because she's coming from a class where people don't have choice. You know, that it just takes a little bit of extra money, you know, to give you the choice to be able to get out, to make something of yourself. But she's in a class where it's, why would you go to college? And people have spoken to me about the mothers and they feel that Helen's mother is really unfair, that she's, you know, an awful wagon. And I'm like, no, she's terrified that her daughter is going to be rejected by people who are a class above them and that her life is going to be full of disappointment. And that's why she doesn't encourage her in her art. It's not because she doesn't love her daughter. It's her way of showing love is to tell her to stay in your lane because you, if you go outside, I can't protect you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite important that, that you don't just decide to give her this great fame and success, yeah. that somehow or other she is being contained by this world. This world is still pulling her back no matter where she goes. Could you take us through other characters in the book, such as the butcher? Oh, the butcher, yeah, the butcher. Actually, I love the butcher. Uh, so the butcher in the book is Taddeus Burke, Ted Burke. And we meet Ted first because he, when Helen goes around to her Leaving Cert art project. She decides to do a project called Greetings from Tremor, and she's going to go and photograph the local people, and then she's going to do portraits of them. And of course, nobody wants to be photographed because they're all camera shy. Uh, but Ted Burke, the butcher, says, oh yeah, and he gets all dressed up in his butcher's finery. She's disappointed because he's blood all over him when she comes in. So he puts on a nice clean coat and on the trilby and puts down the awning and he stands outside. That's the first time we meet him. But Ted Burke has this private life that we then find out about in another chapter called Love Comes Late, or Love Comes Late Around Here, we discover that Ted is a widower um, and that his interest in art goes across the arts, but he keeps it to himself because he doesn't want people to think he's pretentious and he doesn't want his daughters laughing at him. And he has a great interest in musical theatre and opera, but he has nobody to go to the Theatre Royal with him. And so he starts fancying this local woman who, or this woman who moves in locally, Vonnie Jacob, who's also in her 70s. And I really had fun writing this character because I loved the idea of giving these older people, um, getting them to fancy each other. You know, and giving them desire and all of the things that you so rarely read about in fiction. Um, and so Ted has this kind of secret life where he lies in bed, you know, listening to Dame Kiri Tekunawa and fantasizing about her and wants to go out with this local widow. And it's funny with that chapter, somebody asked me, and I don't know if this is where you're going with it, whether 
Joyce had influenced it and whether Ulysses had influenced it because of course it starts with him shaving and it was like oh that's Buck Mulligan and I was going the honest to God truth is I only read Ulysses this year and I'd love to say I was influenced by Joyce but it was the first time I read Ulysses of this year it was my project for the year and I kind of thought my god somehow this has gotten into my psyche when I was writing it I don't know how because I'd never read it but I suppose I must have been exposed to it just through other readings or, yeah, so that's yeah. who Ted is. It's yeah. also sometimes the only time a man becomes fully self-conscious, at, at least, at least it, theoretically, you know, I mean, maybe we all spend our time staring into the mirror, but we're not meant to. We're meant to just do it in the morning when you shave. Yeah. You know, that, that, so that idea of a man vaguely confronting himself, looking in horror at himself, if you're me, yeah. um, and shaving yeah. is, is actually the only time I will deal with a mirror yeah. in any given day. And uh, yeah. the rest of the time I'll run, you know. And, uh, you see, men don't really shave like that anymore. The old, an older generation of men would. So I have this vision definitely of my father, of my late father, who would always have shaved. Like he would not the idea of him ever even having five o'clock shadow, but he would come out of the bathroom covered in toilet roll. <laughs> like with blood, you know? And I was like, how many years have you been doing this? <laughs> you know, and yeah. it was kind of, so I have Ted with this, yeah. you know, how many bits of toilet paper does he need? There's so much blood in him. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the ways in which your novel um, isn't like Ulysses is that there's so much street life in Joyce's book. It, it, the, the, the city is peopled mm. and the streets are peopled, but we very seldom get into anyone's house. Mm. which is what makes the Molly Bloom sequence so interesting at the very end. But there, there's very little domestic life in the book. There's a great deal of pub life uh, and street life and late night life. And, um, but that what you're working with is the tension between the, the sort of, I suppose, the beach, the, um, the amusements, and then when someone closes their door, the actual silence and the secrecy that occurs inside domestic space versus people feeling they know each other or that everyone knows each other. And you think, everyone knows each other. No, they'd watch, read my book because they don't. Yeah. Once the door is closed, and therefore you have a, a, a sort of drama to play all the time that this is happening in secret or this is happening in public. And you can work with both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you, you, like people are unknowable. And that's what I loved about some of these characters, the secret little interests or passions or, and the secrets that they have as well from each other. I mean, the piece that I read um, to begin with, you know, Tip, this is where we meet Stella at the beginning. Tip Phelan sees Stella and she's only 15 or 16 years old and he hasn't slept with his wife since the twins were born. And he has this huge desire for her, which of course is, you know, a bit creepy. <laughs> obviously, but he keeps it from Verona, from the wife, and he's ashamed of it. You know, so that's kind of his secret. Uh, but they all have it. They all have a secret. But you see, Colm, I feel that when you go into a seaside town, it's all jazz hands and candy floss and here come the circus. And, you know, and particularly somewhere like Tremor, because that's down on the prom. But there's a whole what we call the top <laughs> town in the book, a whole town in behind that where people live that we don't think about when we go into resort towns. And it could be in Spain, it could be in Portugal, it could be in Ireland. You just see what's there for the tourists. And so in the off season, that's when you see the locals and that's when you meet them. And then behind that again, they go in behind their doors and what's happening in there. So to actually get through to people, you have to go through all of these, you know, doors essentially to get to what's really going on with them. And then they're self-deluded. So really what's happening? Do we ever know what's going on with somebody? Did you um, present the book or did you launch the book in, in Tremor? 
Uh, no, I didn't actually. I did it in Dublin. I did it in Dublin. But the first reading or the first event that I did, I was invited by a local um, writers group in Tremor to go into a pub, to Croke's pub in Tremor upstairs and read. I was so nervous. Jesus, I thought they're going to egg me. You know, <laughs> so, uh, but they were, you know, they were lovely. It was great. And I think that... Um, because I am a blow-in. My mother lives there. My mother, after my father died, moved down to Tremor. So I spend a lot of time there. She moved from Dublin back down there. She's not from there. She's from South Kilkenny. But so we spend a lot of... That's how I know it so well. But I have that benefit of being inside but on the outside. You know, I don't know anyone other than, you know, I've had an uncle in Tremor. My mother lives there. I don't know anyone else there. So to go into Croke's pub and do that event was really... It was great. Yeah. I was, I was happy they asked me. And you have the world of the guest house to deal with as well. That, that, yeah. that whole idea of... Again, someone running a space that's both public and private mm. that, that, that you can work with in, in, in the same way as a shop almost, you know, that the, the yeah. guest house is there. And They're really useful for writers to have places that are public, you know, public spaces where people come in and talk all the time and what you can do. You know, I mean, that was part of learning to write for me really was understanding that there are physical spaces that are very very um, practical for a writer to use. And so the guest house is one of those, yeah. But also I realised afterwards, afterwards I was going, oh, well, here we go. We're back to honeymoon in Tremor again. I realised all the references to the rashers and the sausages and the breakfast and what was going on in the guest house was very much, um, you know, that, that, that was influenced by Trevor. But that um, chapter really is about, you know, a, a travel writer coming to the town and giving a less than favourable review to Tremor and how the locals receive this. Um, TripAdvisor sort of thing. That kind of thing, yeah, yeah. And so that, that was the inspiration for it because I do, I do remember that happening and the locals being quite up in arms about it. Did you read Winesburg, Ohio? Yeah, 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 that? yeah. So um, it was a long, long time ago that I read it. But um, so this is the idea of a composite novel. Sherwood Anderson, isn't it? Wrote Winesburg, Ohio. Yeah. So um, and Elizabeth Strout is somebody else. It's the American tradition of taking um, many, many characters and having episodes and in small towns where they walk in and out of each other's lives. And I think Winesburg, Ohio, is the first example of that happening. It's a young journalist, isn't it? I, I can't remember the details of it exactly. Column. It's so long ago since I read but, it. But they are sort of but interlocking stories the, and they're all yeah. centred around the, the, the same small place. The, yes, and then and in that case, the narrator um, of Winesburg, Ohio, is the he, it's one character, but whereas I've got many, many different points of view. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's kind of, yeah, he's observing what's going on, whereas this, this is quite different. I associate it more with the way that Elizabeth Strout writes. But when people talk about that structure, I think in Irish writing... I mean, The Green Road, Anne Enright's novel is quite like that. Donald Ryan's books, very similar kind of structure as well, that it is this episodic... You mean taking a single story or a single place and then bringing in a number of characters, rather than having an omniscient narrator or a yeah. single first person, you take five people or you take five perspectives yeah. and you, you can come to the story in that sort of way. Yeah, because I'm really interested in how people different in different points of view because you can ask some and maybe this is my background as a journalist you know where people will tell you the same th story from five different points of view and it has a very different complexion depending on who tells you it and also in the idea of memory I'm fascinated by how nobody remembers the same thing the same way and there's a lot of that in the amusements you know I mean even to the point where at the end of it Stella doesn't remember that she never ever invited Helen to her house, that Helen doesn't even know where the house is, 
even though they were friends for so long, you know. And the reader knows that so well. Yeah, uh, that know. it was the snobbery. Yeah. She stays down in the estate. She yeah. doesn't come up here. But Stella doesn't remember. She has to tell her at the end how to get to the house and they're in their 30s at that stage. And what do you think you're... I mean, I, same thing happened to me where I started as a journalist. And it's hard to know. Sometimes you think, I wanted to do the exact opposite of what I needed to do as a journalist. In other words, get my facts right, you know, get the right length, meet the right deadline. But on the other hand, you learn to have a relationship to readers. In other words, this is being written for a reader. Mm. If it's not, an editor will tell you, I'm not publishing it, it's not being printed, because who's going to read it? And so you have that, you have two things. One, I want to get away from this, and B, I'm learning a lot from it as I'm going on. Did that happen to you? That I'm learning a lot from... That from the, journalism, from, yeah. from the whole idea of the immediacy of the relationship between yeah. writer and reader. Yeah. I, I think journalism really helped me. That wasn't my experience, which you're describing, but there were other ways that it helped me. I realised, you know, I write short. Most writers have this issue of writing loads and having to pair it back, but as a journalist, I write really short. I edit as I go along. Now, I was a news editor, a radio news editor in Today FM for about 15 years, and that was very much about only what needs to be put into the new script, you know, so you're just, con- and then also you're making decisions all the time as a news editor around what's your top story and what's the top line in a story. And it's constant because you're doing it every hour because it's radio. So I found that actually when it came to editing that I probably didn't have the same, I wasn't as precious about it. I didn't need to be because I was pairing back all the time anyway. And then I also wrote, like, I mean, I still write for the Sunday Independent doing columns for them occasionally. But, you know, I wrote a restaurant review for about 12 years for the Irish Independent and they gave me a huge poetic licence. I was allowed to kind of write, you know, it was half it was about the people I went to dinner with. And this was during the Celtic Tiger. So it was really interesting in terms of observing the way that people were behaving in restaurants. For the first time, they had money, how they dressed, you know, the relationship with class and what it meant to be able to go out and splash out money and be seen in places. So it was really fun to write uh, a restaurant column where I was observing what was happening around me. And I think that that actually, I was writing creatively, even though at the time I wasn't consciously doing it. And that really, really helped me. Um, so journalism was a great, yeah, it was, it was a great help to me. But it it must be a relief now for you that you can write the book, you can invent characters, you can imagine moments, you can cut back on things, you can say winter came, no, spring came, autumn came, you can do anything you want and that you don't have the next hour to have another news bulletin ready. It must be a lovely feeling about how you spend your day now. Yeah, absolutely. And as well as that, there were columns that I was writing. And I remember the day I decided I'm done with this. I'd written a column and I'd written something in it where um, through jigsaw identification, the person that I was writing about could have been identified. It was a story that I wanted to tell around children at the time when you were able to hit children in school. And it was this story. And then the editor rang me and said, this has been legal and you could actually identify the person you're talking about in this, which I realised. And I thought I could just write a story about this. That's the way out, you know, and that's why I feel fiction. You can there are truths that you can put in fiction. I think sometimes nonfiction is much more dishonest than fiction. Yeah, you know, yeah, particularly yeah. personal essays, you know, yeah. where you're the worst, the most unreliable narrator of your own story, you know. Um, are you going to go back to Tremor as a, as a fiction writer? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure they'd uh, have me. Uh, so thank you very much. Yeah. It's, it's really very good to be here. Thank you.